Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. folks. Well, we have another interesting topic today. I'm talking about martial law. Now, would you believe me if I told you that martial law had been declared in the United States 68 times? That's right, folks. We think of martial law as something that may have happened during the Civil War or that maybe it never happened here at all. But 68 times martial law has been declared here in the United States. Now, I found a great article by a fellow by the name of J.R. Dunn. He's a consulting editor to the American Thinker. And <clears throat> basically what he starts out telling you is, is basically what is martial law. Now, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 of the U.S. Constitution states specifically, the Congress shall have the power to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. Now, the problem with this is it doesn't tell you how or what defines an insurrection. Now, the states, as well as Congress, can prescribe penalties for failure to obey the president's call of the militia. They also have a concurrent power to aid the national government by calls under their own authority and in emergencies, may use the militia to put down armed insurrection. Now, the federal government may call out the militia in case of civil war. Its authority to suppress rebellion is found in the power to suppress insurrection and to carry on war. Now, where I live in the central part of the United States, I live on a huge lake with lots of tourists. And last weekend, we had thousands of people here visiting the lake. Now, I have a question for all of you out there. How many of those people were Democrats, and how many were Republicans? Don't know? Neither do I. That is why you cannot have such a thing as limited martial law. Martial law must be applied to everyone, liberal and conservative, Black, white, Hispanic, rich, poor, young, old, everyone. And that is the very problem with martial law. Abraham Lincoln had a huge problem with this in trying to impose martial law during the Civil War. 
How do you tell Union folks from Confederate folks? You can't. So everybody must suffer. And that's exactly what happened here in Missouri between 1861 and 1865. Let me tell you a story. On August 30th, 1861, General John Fremont declared martial law in Missouri and set up his headquarters in Jefferson City. He was staying in the Dooley House, up by the old St. Mary's Hospital there in Jefferson City. Now, why there? Well, because under martial law, the military becomes judge, jury, and executioner. The house sat high on a hill overlooking the river and the town, and it was a great place for headquarters. So General Fremont and his men simply walked up to the door of the Dooley home, knocked on the door, and told Mr. Dooley and his wife they had 24 hours to get out. The Dooleys had no recourse. All local law enforcement and civil courts had been suspended and replaced with a military tribunal. Bear in mind, they never asked Mr. Dooley if he was Union or Confederate. They just wanted his house for Union headquarters and took it. So what is martial law? Well, the first thing that you need to know is that the U.S. Constitution is suspended. That's right. You have no rights. Bottom line is, you suddenly have no rights at all. There would be no freedom of speech, no freedom of the press, no freedom of assembly, and you could be arrested at any time for any reason whatsoever. And for the duration of the, in quotes, emergency, the military would be in control. There would be troops in the streets. A curfew would almost certainly be imposed, and armed checkpoints would be set up. And if the emergency lasted long enough, we would probably see authorities go house to house, confiscating firearms and ammunition and even food supplies. And perhaps most troubling of all is dissidents and subversives would likely be rounded up and imprisoned. Now again, how do you tell a dissident or a subversive? Modern times, how do you tell a conservative or a liberal? Now, I know what you're going to say. That could never happen here. Well, unfortunately, that is exactly what happened here in Missouri during the Civil War. And for all the skeptics out there, let me give you the facts. Let's start with General Order Number 32, issued by Union General Halleck, December 21, 1861, right here in Missouri. Anyone caught in the act of sabotage will be immediately shot. No quarter, no trial. Now, a lot of Missourians wanted nothing to do with the war. We were a slave state, but we voted 135,000 to 17,000 to stay in the Union. Truth is, less than 1% of the population of Missouri owned slaves. Our issue was states' rights. Simply wanted the federal government to stay out of our state, stay out of our business. Sound familiar? So most Missourians just wanted to remain neutral and be left alone to work their farms. Well, that quickly ceased to be an option when Union General John Schofield issued General Order Number 19, and it simply stated, Every able-bodied man capable of bearing arms and subject to military duty is hereby ordered to repair without delay to the nearest military post and report for duty. The order went on to say, that its purpose was to exterminate the guerrillas that infest our state. Now, let's look at that one. 
Applied to the current situation, does that mean that the military could come in and tell me I must fight for Biden? If not, am I a traitor? Now, the interesting thing is this works both ways, folks. Let's say Biden enacts martial law, and Trump wins again in 2024, taking office while we're still under martial law. Now he becomes commander-in-chief over the military. He could then use martial law to, man to demand that every able-bodied man must now join the military and fight for Trump. See why I'm scared of it? Martial law is a terrifying tool. So let's proceed. You can no longer be neutral. You must join the military. Now this makes it really easy to see who's with you and who's against you. Walking down the street, if you're wearing a uniform, you're with us. Not wearing a uniform, a traitor. Simple. Another clause of General Order 19 stated that to arm the military, the Union forces had the right to seize all guns. This offered an excellent excuse for Union forces to enter private homes and take what they wanted. Can you say illegal search and seizure? Wait a minute, I have a constitutional right. No, you don't. Remember, I just told you. The Constitution's been suspended. That's martial law, folks. Now, shortly thereafter, on August 12, 1862, General Schofield issued General Order No. 9, which stated that while the Union Army's in the field, they could help themselves to any supplies they needed from any citizens they felt were not loyal to the Union. Well, who determined loyalty? You guessed it, the military. Again, how do you tell, Union or Confederate, today, Republican or Democrat? Now bear in mind, you're sitting there on your farm minding your own business, and here comes an army of 2,000 men. They crest the hill. They're hungry. They're thirsty. Guess what? All of a sudden, you're the enemy, and they help themselves to your chickens and to your cattle and to your corn. There's nothing you can do. It's all perfectly legal as commanded by the federal government. Now, <clears throat> this brings us to an interesting situation that took place. It was called the Palmyra Massacre in Palmyra, Missouri, on October 18th of 1862. Ten Confederate prisoners of war were executed in retaliation for the abduction of a local Union supporter, a fe fellow by the name of Andrew Alsman. Now, the officer who ordered the execution, Colonel John McNeil, was later known as the Butcher of Palmyra. Now, Colonel McNeil commanded the Union's 2nd Missouri State Militia in Palmyra. And he also stationed in Palmyra along with him was the Provost Marshal General for Northeast Missouri, Colonel William Strachan, military commander for the whole area. Now, one of the Colonel's local informants was 60-year-old Andrew Alsman. Colonel McNeil published a notice in the Palmyra Courier demanding the Confederate guerrillas return Alsman unharmed to his family within 10 days. Alsman had been captured, and the Confederates were holding him. Now, McNeil went on to say, if you fail to do so, I'm going to take 10 people who are here in Palmyra, and I'm going to arrest them, drag them out, and have them shot. I'm just going to pick 10 people. Not necessarily that they're, you know, Union sympathizers or Confederates or whoever they are. We're just going to take 10 citizens. 
Now, bear in mind, these people were citizens that this guy just simply deemed as traitors by the military. No trial, no jury, no habeas corpus under martial law. When the 10 days passed with no word from Porter, McNeil directed Provost Marshal Strachan to compile a list of 10 prisoners to face a firing squad. And the execution was scheduled for October the 18th. And shortly past noon on Saturday the 18th, three federal government wagons arrived at the Palmyra Jail. One carried four rough wooden coffins, and the other two carried three each. The prisoners were led out of the jail, and each man was seated on a coffin. The wagons were taken to the amphitheater of the fairgrounds, where the coffins were unloaded and placed in a row with the lids removed. About a hundred spectators gathered. After a prayer by a local Baptist minister, the ten men sat on the foot of their coffins about 30 feet from the firing squad. Shortly after 1 p.m., the Baptist minister gave each man a final handshake, and with that, Major Isham Dodson, in charge of the firing squad, called them to attention and gave the orders. Ready, aim, thus perish all traitors to the country's flag, fire. Now the bodies were placed in the coffins and the lids nailed shut. The wagons took the coffins back to the town square to be claimed, claimed by the relatives. Colonel McNeil left Palmyra before the executions and went to St. Louis to give a newspaper interview explaining his actions. The interview was published in several newspapers, and the executions were condemned in the New York Times and a number of international newspapers. To stop the criticism and show his support for McNeil, Colonel Lewis Merrill, commander of the Union District of Northeast Missouri, relieved Strachan as Provost Marshal General, claiming the position was no longer necessary. Colonel McNeil was then promoted to Brigadier General of the Volunteers. Now, just about the time you think that things can't get any worse, along comes Brigadier General Thomas Ewing, commander of the Union forces in the western half of Missouri. Now, he decided that the guerrillas couldn't be defeated as long as the citizens kept helping them. So now what did he do? He declared all the citizens of Missouri as being enemies of the state, enemies of the federal government. Now, bear in mind, your husband, husband could be off fighting for the Union. Yet, because you lived in Missouri, you're now the enemy. Again, how do you tell if someone is Union or Confederate? You can't. Today, how do you tell if somebody's conservative or liberal? You can't. You all know the answer. When you yourself are risking death by being labeled, the smart thing to do is to cooperate with the military by pointing out the traitors in the community. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. It happened throughout the war. Bear in mind, no jury, no trial, just the word of your neighbor. Think about that. That's a great way to get rid of that nosy neighbor and his kids. Or maybe the guy is stealing tomatoes out of your garden. Just point a finger at him. Tell the authorities, hey, he's a Confederate. Bingo. He's gone. So back to General Ewing. He can't seem to root out all the rebels in Missouri. So what did he do? He started by arresting and imprisoning the wives, moms, and sisters of the rebels. 
They were rounded up and put in makeshift jails in Kansas City, Missouri. General Ewing soon realized he didn't have enough jail space for all of them, so he proposed the removal of all rebel families from Missouri. Now bear in mind, are you a rebel? No, you say, I'm not a rebel. Well, it doesn't matter. If I think you are, we're going to kick you out of Missouri. Now, August 14, 1863, an event took place. An old building on Grand Avenue in Kansas City, being used as a prison, collapsed, and it killed the wives and sisters of many, William Clark, many of William Clark Quantrell's men, the famous guerrillas of Missouri. Now, bear in mind, this had Jesse James and Frank James and the Younger Brothers. These guys all rode with Quantrell. So lots of their relatives were killed in this building. Now, on the same day the prison collapsed, General Thomas Ewing issued General Order Number 10, and it stated the wives and children of known guerrillas and also women who are heads of families and are willfully engaged in aiding guerrillas will be notified by such officers to remove out of this district and out of the state of Missouri forthwith. So the wives and children are known guerrillas, but also women who are heads of families and are willfully engaged in aiding guerrillas. So again, all you have to do is point a finger at the old lady across the street and say, yeah, she's supplying the guerrillas, and she's gone. That's all it took. You have no rights. There is no constitution. Martial law prevails. Now, this was the final straw when this prison collapsed for Quantrell and his men. They now mounted up and headed for Lawrence, Kansas, and conducted the now famous Sack of Lawrence on August 21st of 1863. And all the male citizens of Lawrence were killed, and the town was burned to the ground. In response, General Thomas Ewing now issued General Order Number 11 on August 25th, 1863 which called for the forced removal of all Missouri citizens in Jackson, Bates, Cass, and half of Vernon counties. You had 15 days to get out, or you will be shot. Now, did you catch that? All Missouri citizens in four counties. Now, bear in mind, this, these counties are Kansas City and the three counties south of it. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a union or not. Your husband could be fighting for the Union, and you still lost everything. If you lived in one of those counties, Jackson, Bates, Cass, or half of Vernon counties, they didn't care who you were. If you got 15 days to get out of there, we're going to come in and shoot you. Again, no recourse. The military, under martial law, is judge, jury, and executioner. And for hundreds of miles, every home, barn, and structure was then burned to the ground, and all the fields set afire. And for years after the war, those four counties were known as the Burnt District. Again, you as a citizen had no recourse, no compensation, just pack your stuff up and get out. Well, what about our right to private property? Wait, wait a minute, life, liberty, and property? No, no, not anymore. There is no constitution. You're under martial law, so forget it. The constitution has been suspended. Now, bear in mind, General Order Number 23 had been established back in 1862 to implement martial law. And basically what it did is it created a provost marshal general in St. Louis, the guy in charge of the whole state, and then district provost marshals throughout the state. 
the provost marshal had complete authority to arrest and imprison people at will. They alone became judge, jury, and executioner, and they answered to no court. Now, provost marshals now also came up with a system of loyalty oaths. How are we going to make sure these people comply? And so what you had to do is you had to go to your county courthouse and swear an oath of loyalty to the union and post a $1,000 bond. Now, folks, back in the 1860s, you could buy 160 acres of land for $40. People didn't have $1,000, and they knew that. So when you went in and had to swear this oath of loyalty, they said, okay, $1,000 bond, say I don't have it. Well, no problem. What we'll do is we'll take the deed to your property, and we're going to hold that. And if you violate anything that we tell you to do, we'll seize your property. Now, think about it again in modern times. Can you imagine having to swear an oath of loyalty to Trump or to Biden at the risk of losing everything and being thrown in jail? That's martial law, folks. So, like I say, don't have the money? No problem. We take the deed to your home and hold it as a bond. Now, it's simply the provost marshal's word versus yours if you're loyal to the union. And you could lose everything. Now, think about that. You got a neighbor that doesn't like you? All he has to do is go to the county courthouse to the provost marshal and say, hey, I think that guy's supplying the guerrillas. They come, arrest you, throw you in jail. You lose your farm, everything you've worked for. Your family's kicked out on the road. And with that, your farm goes up on the courthouse steps. And you guessed it. When it goes up for sale on the courthouse steps, the first bid is $10 for 160 acres of land and a house. And who's bidding? You know it, the provost marshal. Are you going to bid against him? No. And so what happens is, is the provost marshals literally become kings. They own everything. And they, a lot of them made a fortune just simply by doing just that very good thing. The only thing you're guilty of is having the best, prettiest farm in the whole area. Now, to give you an idea, in April of 1863, the Kansas City Journal newspaper stated that the provost marshal held bonds totaling over $27 million dollars. Again, think about that, $27 million in 1863, and you could buy 160 acres of land for 40 bucks. So you can see, this was craziness. Now, if you didn't take the oath, guess what? You're on the other side. You're arrested and imprisoned. If you broke the oath after you went into town and signed it, put up your bond, if they caught you in any way fighting against the Union, you were shot. Remember, no jury trial, no representation. Some entire towns vanished because everyone was arrested. In June of 1863, General Schofield issued general orders stating that for every Union soldier killed, $5,000 would be assessed and collected from the people living in the community where the death occurred. Now bear in mind, you didn't have anything to do with it. You're just on your farm, and lo and behold... There in the community, Union soldiers get ambushed by the guerrillas, and now all of a sudden here comes an assessment against you, $5,000. Well, you don't have that. Guess what? Your property goes up, right? Now, <clears throat> opposition to the Union cause by utterance 
or through the press was forbidden between 1861 and 1865. Well, now, wait a minute. What about the First Amendment for freedom of the press? Uh-oh, I forgot. There is no Constitution. And so if you even spoke out against the government, here they come. And orders were sent out that all newspapers had to be sent to the military for inspection prior to publication, and all newspaper editors were to take an ironclad oath of loyalty to the U.S. Think the press is bad now? Think the disinformation board was a bad idea? Can you imagine what it was like under martial law? Now, on September 17, 1863, General Schofield issued General Order Number 96 that basically stated it was against the law to incite rebellion through published materials, and if you're found guilty of doing so, it was punishable by fine and imprisonment, and the paper will be shut down. So between 1861 and 1865 in Missouri, we saw the federal government impose martial law, establish military commissions, arrest and imprison people at will, seize their property and their guns, banish people from the state, and eliminate the people's right to free speech. Did it work? Of course not. It simply poured more fuel on the fire. So folks, there is no limited martial law. It's all or nothing. So tread lightly when you call for it. By the way, did you once hear me mention the word slavery? For Missouri, it was all about states' rights and a federal government out of control. Now, our current federal government has become too powerful, folks, regardless of who serves as presidents. We need to return to the system created by our founding fathers, as stated in the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution. Power is not granted to the federal government and the Constitution belong to the states or to the people. So I know what you're thinking. It could never happen here. Well, you remember when we started, I told you that martial law has been declared in the U.S. 68 times according to the Brennan Center for Justice. Now think about this. There's several different situations. We'll start with war or invasion. <clears throat> now, General Andrew Jackson declared martial law before the famous Battle of New Orleans in 1814. That's right. He declared martial law. And from December 12th of 1814 till March 13th of 1815, the city of New Orleans was under martial law. Now, this was the first declaration of martial law in U.S. history. Now, you think, oh, well, that was way back then. It was different times. Well, let's jump forward a little bit. How about President Franklin Roosevelt? approving the declaration of martial law in Hawaii after the attack on Pearl Harbor of 1941. Now again, this was all of the Hawaiian Islands, a federal declaration of martial law. And the reason they did it is they don't know who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. There's spies all over this island, obviously. So from December 7th of 41 until October 24th of 44, two years and ten months, People in Hawaii are under martial law. The governor himself declared the authority, and he was backed by President Franklin Roosevelt. Want another one? Governor Brigham Young 
declared martial law in Utah. Now, bear in mind, Brigham Young and the Mormons had fled out west after not being accepted back east and created their own little country called Deseret out in Utah. And out there, he became like the territorial governor. Well, he didn't want to impose federal laws on his people. He was doing his own thing. And word got back to the federal government that you got a guy out there trying to create his own country. And with that, he declares, Governor uh, Brigham Young declares martial law because federal troops are very quickly going to come out there and straighten this mess out. Well, sure enough, here come the federal troops. Now, although Brigham Young declared martial law, basically under his authority as territorial governor, he did so in order to facilitate armed resistance to approaching federal troops. Now, the hostilities in Utah ended on June 12, 1858, when Young, seeing he was hopelessly outnumbered, accepted President James Buchanan's pardon and stepped down from power. Interesting. We've already told you about martial law in Missouri. It was declared by this guy, General John Fremont. He just simply declared it. When word got back to Lincoln that his general had declared martial law, Lincoln asked. He said, can he do that? And everybody said, well, I guess so. And they did. Now, it's interesting as well that we started to see martial law taking place in the 20th century. And in these cases, it was to put down, quote, insurrection. General Charles Barrett declared martial law in response to the Tulsa, Oklahoma race riot of 1921. It lasted from June 1st of 21 till June 4th of 21. Texas Governor Dan Moody declared martial law in response to the Sherman riot of 1930. This was in Sherman, Texas. So again, here you have a governor declaring martial law. Acting Texas Governor A.M. Aiken declared martial law in response to the Beaumont race riot of 1943. And so it goes. Riots in 1963 in Cambridge, uh, Maryland. Again, martial law. Now, another interesting thing that happened here, and this is something to think about, folks. We started to see martial law being used by governors against organized labor. That's right, organized labor. So when people would go on strike and there was a shortage of things like coal or fuel or whatever people needed, they said it was necessary for the federal government to come in and put down the strike. And the only way to do that was through martial law, to use troops against the strikers. That's right. As far back as 1877, Pennsylvania Governor John Frederick Hartrenf declared martial law. And you know where he did it? Scranton, that's right, Scranton, Pennsylvania, the one that our our good president declares, you know, oh, I grew up in Scranton. I wonder if he knows about that, that the martial law was declared and troops were used against the good people of Scranton. And no, folks, I'm not just picking on our current president. Idaho Governor N.B. Willie declared martial law during a violent struggle between mine operators 
and miners in and around Coeur d'Alene in Idaho in 1892. There was a violent struggle between mine operators and the miners in and around that whole area. And they just simply called out the military and used them for four and a half months. How about Governor Robert E. Patterson declared martial law during the Homestead Strike in Pennsylvania in 1892? And here again, what happened was, is that the strikers are saying, look, we want better wages, we need better working conditions. And when they went on strike, it caused a shortage. And with that, the governor now calls up the National Guard, and he had the full support of the federal government in putting down the strike. So think about this, folks. Around the turn of the 20th century, when you went to protest for higher wages or better working conditions, you were running the risk of the military coming in and putting down your strike. And yes, they did open fire and kill strikers. Minnesota Governor Orville Freeman declared martial law in Freeborn County in response to a meatpacking workers' strike. This happened in December of 1959, and it lasted for 11 days. So again, you can see what recourse do you have when the federal government and your state government pull out all the stops. Now, it's not always bad to declare martial law. Sometimes it may not be a bad deal. And I'm talking here about natural disasters. Mayor R.B. Mason actually declared martial law after the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. I mean, bottom line is, the city was in shambles. They needed help, and so they called out the military to help them. Mayor Walter C. Jones declared martial law after the Great Galveston Hurricane. That's right. A huge hurricane hit Texas in 1900, and they were overwhelmed. They didn't know what to do. And so with that, the mayor of Galveston declared martial law, and with that it brought him the necessary resources and help he needed to maintain civil order and to help the people. So there you have it, folks. Martial law. It can be good, and it can be very bad. I myself would hate to live under that type of situation. And like I say, the scariest thing about it is you are totally at the mercy of who is, who's in charge. You have no recourse. Our Constitution is something that we simply must cherish. And it is just frightening to me to think about the possibilities of it being suspended and of us being left at the whims of whatever dictator comes to power. That's all I have for today, folks. I'm Professor Jim Paisley. If you would like to help me continue these shows, it's as simple as clicking the support link where you access this podcast. Thanks, and be sure to remember your history.